The readings this morning are from Proverbs and John. Our first reading is Proverbs chapter 9, verses 1 to 6. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out its seven pillars. She has prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her maids, and she calls from the highest point of the city. Let all who are simple come in here, she says to those who lack judgment. Come, eat my food and drink the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and you will live. Walk in the way of understanding. Our second reading is from John, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some water out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. This is God's word. Do keep that second reading open, if you would, in John chapter 2. It begins with great expectations. It's a wedding, an old-fashioned wedding that lasted several days in a village no one would have heard of had it not been for what happened on this day. The bride and bridegroom have great expectations of love and loyalty and faithfulness and joy and intimacy and building a family The families have great expectations, perhaps of becoming grandparents and uncles and aunts and seeing the family grow. The host family have particular expectations of this day, this week perhaps, putting on a good party that will bring them honor in the community. And no doubt the village have great expectations, for a wedding is a kind of focus of all the hopes and expectations of the human heart. But although it begins with great expectations, it's not long before it's threatened by a great disappointment. And although amongst the guests the hubbub of chatter and laughter and eating and drinking continues, like the passengers on the Titanic, behind the scenes all is not well. They have no more wine. And behind the scenes, the caterers know that disaster threatens. There's no such thing as drinking water, Coca-Cola, elderflower cordial. 
And the caterers know that the wine that's out there is the last there is. And they know that when that wine is drunk, there'll be a very long and awkward silence. And the party will end. And for decades afterwards, that couple and that family will be known as the couple whose wedding was ruined by the wine running out. Oh, so you're the couple. We've heard about you. They'll say that 20 years later. And so the caterers begin to panic. But this party that begins with great expectations, that is threatened by a great disappointment, is then interrupted by a strange conversation. There's a mother there, an older mother, perhaps a widow by this time. She comes from a village nearby, about nine or ten miles away. I think she knows the host family, perhaps, probably. She certainly knows what's happening. She knows they've run out of wine. And her oldest son is there. He's come up from the south of the country with some friends. And she says to him, they've run out of wine. I don't know why she says it to him, whether she thinks he can help, whether she just wants to say it to somebody, but she does. And he says to her, Lady, Madam, what's it got to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Very strange thing to say. He's not rude. He calls her something like lady or madam, but he doesn't call her mum. And he says, what's it got to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Anyway, the strange conversation continues because the, the mother looks to the caterers who are standing around in a bit of a spin, and she says, look, this is my oldest son. Do what he tells you. I don't know what they expected. I don't know what she expected him to do. Tell him to head off to the wine merchants ASAP. I don't know. Anyway, this is what he says. There's half a dozen whopping great stone jars sitting there behind the scenes in the corridor, I expect. About a 100 litres each, big stone jars. There's a bit of water left in them. They've been used for giving the guests at the wedding a kind of ceremonial wash on the way in, washing their hands on the way in. So it's just washing water. And this young man says to the caterers, go off to the well or wherever the water supply is and fill those jars up again. As they do what they're told, I imagine they are thinking to themselves, what kind of joker is this? We've run out of wine. That ceremonial washing water was used to wash the guests at the beginning of the party, but any second now the party's going to come to a terrible end. But they do what they're told. That's it, he says, right up to the brim. Okay, he says, now you ladle some of that out, put it in the wine jars, take it off to the head waiter, and serve it up. Now, I have no gift of prophecy, but I just have a hunch that as they did that, as they poured this washing water into the wine jars... I have a hunch that they were just ever so slightly nervous. I mean, what kind of caterer passes washing water off as wine? Not one who values their job, presumably. So as they walk off, I imagine there's just ever so slightly nervous. And as they they, they take the first jar to the head waiter, the master of ceremonies, and he pours a glass out or they pour a glass out for him, and as he lifts the first glass of this new wine to his lips to taste it. 
I imagine there's the odd skipped heartbeat, don't you? I imagine they can just imagine the publicity all over the social media. Not only was this the wedding where the wine ran out, but this was the wedding where the stupid caterers tried to pass off washing water as wine. Anyway, he lifts the glass to his lips and then he beckons to the bridegroom. And he says, do you mind if we just have a quiet word? And I imagine the caterers who've been been carrying the stuff out there, I imagine they're desperately trying to listen, don't you? And the head waiter says to the bridegroom, my dear chap, you amaze me. You amaze me. Most weddings I've been to, they serve decent wine at the beginning, and then when people are cheerfully tipsy, they save money with some plonk from Asda. But the Queen's sommelier couldn't have done better than you've done today. I don't know why you've done this at the end, but it's magnificent. That's the story. It's a wonderful story. It's a true story. But what's the point? Have a look, if you will. It's the story that Emily read to us from John chapter 2. It's a famous story. If you're a Bible reader, if you know the Christian Bible, the Gospels, you, you may be familiar with this story. But what's the point? Have a look at verse 11 at the end of the story. This, says John, the Gospel writer, this the first of Jesus's miraculous signs he performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. So he says three things. First of all, he says this was the first of Jesus's miraculous signs. That's the word that John in his gospel uses for what we would normally just call a miracle. And by calling it a sign, as he does with others later in his gospel, he's saying it's a signpost. This is a story which points to a bigger story. And we'll be looking at that bigger story in just a moment. Second, he says that by it, Jesus revealed his glory. If you were here three weeks ago, we were right at the beginning of John's gospel. And if you turn back a page to chapter 1, verse 14... You'll see chapter 1, verse 14, the Word, the eternal Word, God with God, became flesh, became a human being, and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We've seen his glory. Now, here's the thing. When the eternal Word, God with God, God the Son, took on human nature. He, he never ceased to be divine. He never ceased to be God the Son. But what happened was that his deity, the majesty, the wonder of his identity as God the Son, was, as it were, cloaked. It's a little bit like someone's used the illustration of if you, if you went into a showroom, a car showroom, and you said, do you mind if I test drive that magnificent Ferrari? And you take the Ferrari out on a test drive and you take it through mud and dirt and it comes in absolutely caked in mud and dirt. And and, and the, the, the salesman protests and you say, no, no, it's the same Ferrari underneath. I haven't done it any damage. 
And if you wipe away some of the mud, you'll catch a glimpse of what it is, of what a magnificent car it still is underneath. And in the same sort of way, Jesus of Nazareth, fully human, there were times in his life when, as it were, the, the, the mud was scraped away and a glimpse was caught of the true glory of the one underneath. We've seen his glory. And John says that this little story enabled Jesus' friends to begin to see his glory, his true identity. And then John says in verse 11, his disciples put their faith in him. They began to trust him. This true story comes at the end of the first section of John's gospel. And it comes at the end of a, of a, of a succession of days. So if you glance back at chapter 1, verse 19, where the main story begins, you'll see that there's a day in which John the Baptist bears testimony to Jesus. Then if you glance on to, to verse 29, you'll see that the next day, so the first day, the second day, and John again bears testimony to Jesus. And then if you look on to verse 35, you'll see the third day, where, where some disciples begin to follow Jesus, and they stay with him that day, verse 39. They spend the day with him. And verse 40 may be the beginning of a fourth day, where Andrew brings his brother Simon to Jesus. And then verse 43 would be the beginning of a fifth day, where Jesus decides to leave for Galilee. And then chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day, so on the, on the fifth day, he decides to leave for Galilee. The sixth day, they travel. And the seventh day, which is the third day after the previous one, they arrive in Cana in the north in Galilee. And so this final day of what may be a week, we can't be absolutely sure about that, but it may be a week. And if it is a week, it's, it's a kind of parallel to the beginning of the creation of the world. It's a kind of symbolic week in which something cosmic and significant is happening. And I want us to, to look at this uh, water into wine sign, and I want us to um, trace it out and relate it to the big story. So let's take it in its phases. Let's start with the great expectations. It's a wedding, verses 1 and 2. There they are. Jesus is there with his mother and his friends, his disciples. At every wedding... In the Bible, and indeed every wedding in human history is a kind of anticipation of the end of human history. Every wedding is a kind of party which focuses human hopes. That's right, isn't it? You go to a wedding, and a wedding is full of human hopes and expectations and human desires for intimacy and delight and love and faithfulness and family and children and hope and the future. All of those things are focused on a wedding. And a, a, a feast or a party or a wedding is, is a lovely Bible image of the fulfillment of all human hopes. So our first Bible passage in Proverbs 9, wisdom is portrayed as a great lady who's having a feast. She's having a party and she invites people. She says, I've got food, I've got wine. It's going to be a wonderful party. Come to my party. And the party is a kind of symbol of the fulfillment of all human yearnings and longings, and ultimately for the overcoming of sickness and death. 
You and I are hardwired with longings like that. Isn't that right? Whether you're married, unmarried, divorced, widowed, whatever state you are in life, is it not true that when you go to a wedding, it stirs up in you those kinds of longings and hopes and desires? Isn't that right? That's what weddings do. That's why the Bible uses them as a picture of the end of the world. But just as this little wedding in this unknown village that nobody would ever have heard about is threatened with a great disappointment, so in the big story of human existence, our longings and desires and our hopes are shadowed with disappointment. They have no more wine. And it is a picture here. It's a picture particularly of the bankruptcy of old covenant, Old Testament Judaism, as we shall see. But it's a picture also of the bankruptcy of all human religion, all human philosophy, all human ways of coping with life, that those ways ultimately will come to the the end point. They have no more wine. I wonder how often you have, as I have, looked forward to something. Maybe you've looked forward to a party, you've looked forward to an outing, you've looked forward to a holiday, you've looked forward maybe even to a honeymoon. You've looked forward to something and you've greatly looked forward to it. And it's been the focus of your hopes in all sorts of perfectly good and natural and innocent ways. Am I not right in saying that afterwards it has never been absolutely possible for you or I to say of that event, that outing, that holiday, whatever it may be, to say of it with absolute truthfulness, what a perfect day. What a perfect day. I'm glad I spent it with you. He died, didn't he, just a couple of weeks ago. That there's no such thing in this age of an absolutely perfect day, of a day that is untainted by the trace of an anxiety or a fear or a misdirected affection, or a resentment, or a bitterness, or a hurt, or a disappointment, or something that spoiled it. Isn't that right? If anybody's had a perfect day, I just think you must be a time traveler. You must have come back from the end of the world. There isn't such a thing in this life as that. The Christian apologist C.S. Lewis famously said, most people would know that they do want, and they want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. They have no more wine. And if you and I think that this age can give us the fulfillment of those longings, you and I are bound to be disappointed at some stage. And it's possible that there's somebody here, and life at the moment for you is so good that the danger is that you will think that this is the ultimate party, this life that you're living is so good. It's possible 
There may be someone like that that you're in danger of thinking that. And if you are, you need to know that the time will come when there will be no more wine, when the joy will run out, when human sin and wickedness and evil and moral dirt will spoil it, when the shadow of death will fall on it. There will be no more wine, that great disappointment. And so this wedding in its great expectations mirrors for us human longings, and its great disappointment mirrors for us the human condition. But what are the strange conversation in the middle? Jesus's mother is there, we're told in verse 1, and Jesus and his disciples have been invited, verse 2. And verse 3, Jesus' mother says to him, they've no more wine. And then he says to her, verse 4, dear woman, woman, madam, lady, and he doesn't call her his mother because that relationship is no longer relevant. Why do you involve me? What's it got to do with me? My time, my hour has not yet come. Now, at one level, what Jesus is doing is saying, as he does later in the gospel, he's saying, I'm not going to do anything to anybody else's agenda. That's partly what Jesus is doing. We meet it again in chapter 7, where his brothers say, why don't you go down to Jerusalem? And he says, no, I'm not going when you tell me to go. Because Jesus marches to one tune. He marches to his father's drumbeat. And he does only what his father says and when his father says it. So it's partly that. But it's also this, isn't it? As you read through John's Gospel, you find that Jesus' time, Jesus' hour, is like a, it's like a drumbeat that marches through John's Gospel. So the first half of John's Gospel, several times, we read that Jesus' hour has not yet come. In chapter 7, they try to arrest him, but they fail because his hour hasn't yet come. In chapter 8, the same again, my hour hasn't come. And then when you get to the midpoint of John's gospel, suddenly Jesus begins to say the hour has come, the time has come. And the time is the time of the cross, the time when he'll be lifted up, the time when his glory will be revealed much more deeply than it is at the the, the wedding in Cana of Galilee. And so when Jesus says at this story, at this, this, this party here, my hour, my time is not yet here, what he's saying is this, he's saying, He's saying, what, what I'm about to do is nothing more than a sign, a foretaste. It's nothing more than the, the scent of a flower that you haven't yet seen. It's nothing more than the fragrance of a meal that you haven't yet eaten. It's nothing more than a foretaste. It's nothing more than a signpost. That's what it is. My hour has not yet come. But he's also saying, isn't he, that When his hour does come, it's the hour of the cross, it's the hour of his suffering, it's the hour when he pays for sin. And he's really saying that the miracle he's about to perform, wonderful though it is, is a miracle whose price has not yet been paid. And the only reason this miracle can signify anything that's going to happen at the end of time is because of his hour, because of the day when he will be lifted up on the cross. It's just a trailer for that. But then from verse 6, this story is rescued by what I call a quiet miracle. These jars, verse 6, these big stone water jars, are used by the Jews, verse 6, for ceremonial washing. 
That is not coincidental. I don't know if you've wondered why Jesus, if if he's going to turn water into wine, why does he say to them, go and get the water from the well or wherever they get water from and put it into these stone jars if he's immediately going to say to them, now take it out again? (laughs) There must be some significance in putting it into the stone jars. And the significance surely is this. The water, the washing water in these jars was used. You went to a wedding and they washed your hands with this water and it was a, it was a kind of outward sign of saying, we're doing a ceremonial washing of dirt from your skin as a sign that you and I are dirty inside and we need to be washed inside. The ceremonial washing doesn't actually wash us inside, but it's a sign that we need it. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to take all that Old Testament Judaism, all that stuff that was so good in what it symbolized and so true and so God-given, all that stuff that said to human beings, it's, it's the inside dirt that messes us up. That's why we're under the shadow of death. That's why we never experience the perfect day in this age. And Judaism said, the Old Testament said, the washing is a sign that you need cleansing from that. I need cleansing from that. And Jesus says, I'm going to take that, which is bankrupt and can never achieve what it symbolizes, was never intended to, never could, never would. I'm going to take that and I'm going to do something with that, which symbolizes the bringing of joy into the heart and the changing of the heart. And it's probably a symbol of the Holy Spirit changing human beings on the inside. But it's a very quiet miracle. I wonder if you've noticed how quiet it is. It takes place in Galilee, not in Jerusalem. The last three weeks, the last two weeks we've been in Jerusalem. And now they've gone up into Galilee, which is, which is the far away place. It's the insignificant, out of the way place. It takes place in a little village called Cana that nobody would ever have heard of. It's an, an insignificant village in an insignificant region. And most of the people present at this little wedding in this insignificant village in this insignificant region, most of them don't even know the miracles happened. The head waiter doesn't even know there's been a miracle. Nobody knows there's been a miracle except the, the few servants who, who had to do this strange thing and, and a few of Jesus' friends who were watching. Nobody else knew it was happening. I mean, word got out later, I imagine. It would be strange if it didn't. But nobody knew at the time. It was a very, very quiet miracle. Nobody, the, the, the head waiter didn't say over the um, public address system, ladies and gentlemen, we were about to run out of wine, But Jesus from Nazareth has just turned 600 litres of washing water into the very best wine. Thank you, Jesus. Please raise your glasses and toast Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, they didn't do that. It wasn't that kind of miracle, was it? It was a behind-the-scenes miracle. Just a few people saw what had happened. We're not even told exactly how it happened. Did you notice the very low-key way it's described in verse 9? The master at the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. It's almost in brackets. Oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you, it's been turned into wine. It's a very quiet miracle. And it's, it's, it's a miracle that does suddenly what God does gradually every year in every vineyard. 
Every year in every vineyard, God turns rainwater into wine, gradually. And the Word become flesh, the Word who is God with God, the Word through whom all things were made, is doing here quietly, but suddenly, at just the right time, as a signpost, something which he's been doing for hundreds of years every season in every vineyard. And it is the beginning of the revelation of his glory. And his disciples believe in him. And they begin, they believe very shallowly at this stage. You read through John's Gospel and you realize, you read through the other Gospels, it took a long time before their belief had any depth to it. But they begin to get a glimpse, as it were, of the Ferrari underneath. They begin to get a glimpse of the wonder of the man who walks amongst them. And it ends with surprise delight in verses 9 and 10. A number of times in the Old Testament, in the prophets, a feast or a wedding or wine is used as an image, not of drunkenness, but an image of delight and fulfillment and the overcoming of death and of the age to come and of the fulfillment of all those human longings. And when the head waiter says, you have saved the best till now, that is a wonderful image of what Jesus does. And Jesus' disciples began to grasp that day that he is the one who takes all the images and pictures and symbolism of the Old Testament All that stuff about ceremonial washing and so on. All that stuff that said, you and I are dirty, messed up people, twisted people, distorted people inside. That's why the world's in such a mess. That's why we're under the shadow of this disappointment and death. And we need cleaning. And they began to realize that this Jesus of Nazareth was the one who could take what was symbolized in the Old Testament and fulfill it when his hour came, when he was lifted up on the cross for sinners, when he paid the penalty for sins, and when the Holy Spirit could be poured out into human hearts, and when human beings can be changed on the inside, that he is the one who can do that. And 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 for every Christian believer, I guess there's two dangers. One I've touched on earlier It's the danger that life is so good and so easy. Maybe you're happy in love. Maybe everything's going really well with you. And the danger is that you think that this life is the perfect day, the perfect party. One day you will be disillusioned. And my guess is that far more of us here have already been disillusioned. That we're old enough to know that the perfect day is not possible here. There may be some who are... even today, going through great suffering and pain and disappointment and the thought that things they've hoped for, that those hopes may be dashed. And that's a really hard thing. And this true story, this signpost of what Jesus of Nazareth did is a word for us. And as the head waiter says at the end, you've saved the best till now. That is a wonderful truth that every Christian every day, can say to God, our Heavenly Father, because of the Lord Jesus, I know you have saved the best till the end. I know that the best is yet to come. I know that whatever joys this life can offer, 
And thank God this life does sometimes offer great joys and great delight. I know that whatever joys this life offers ultimately will end up with there is no more wine. Ultimately, they, they will, they, 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 it, it'll end. May end suddenly and tragically. May end gradually with a long decay and dementia and, 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 and then death. May end in all sorts of different ways. It may end with a cruel bereavement, a cruel disappointment, but it will end. But for the Christian believer, we can say that the, the Jesus of Nazareth who turned ceremonial washing water into wine to gladden the heart and save the best to the end of the party, that he's the one who saves the best to the end. And however tough things may be for you or for me, now or in the future, however much we may feel the pain of the bankruptcy of the joys of this age, if we belong to Jesus of Nazareth, if we follow him, we follow the man who saved the best till last. We follow the man who on his own wedding day at the end of time, when all human desires of all those who trust in him will be gloriously fulfilled. That you and I will echo the surprised delight of this head waiter. And however much we think we understand about Christian faith here and now, on that day, you and I will turn, as the head waiter did, to the bridegroom. You and I will turn to the Lord Jesus and we'll say, you have truly saved the best till now. And we shall thank and praise him for that. And I hope and pray that that will be a word to encourage us, whatever our circumstances, whatever the state of our lives, to trust or trust afresh in Jesus of Nazareth, who alone is able to do that, to turn washing water into the very best of wine. Let's be quiet for a moment and I'll pray. God, our Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you that when he was glorified, lifted up on the cross to die, he paid the penalty for the last sin of the worst sinner who will ever trust in him. And we praise you that in following him, we may be absolutely confident that on that day there will be no disappointment but amazed delight. We pray that you would put it into our hearts that we might be faithful followers of him. We ask it in his name. Amen.